Brazil's former leader Lula will reclaim the country's presidency after defeating the incumbent hard-right leader. It's Monday, October 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the Supreme Court today hears a case linked to Harvard challenging affirmative action programs. What is happening on college campuses today is that applicants are treated differently because of their race and ethnicity. Also this hour, after the attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, we look at the rise in political violence in the U.S. Plus, we meet a Cambridge author who studies how people use technology to remember the dead, and he makes a personal connection. The last thing I wanted to do was hear the voice of my dead father coming through a tape recorder. (laughs) Forecast says partly sunny today. Highs in the 60s. It's Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Supreme Court hears arguments today about affirmative action in college admissions. From member station GBH in Boston, Kirk Carapeza reports Harvard and the University of North Carolina are accused of discriminating against white and Asian American students in admissions. If the court decides the schools do hold Americans to higher standards, that could spell the end of race-conscious admissions, which would lead to a drop in black and Latino students. This is not a time to be scared. Attorney Jamie Lewis Keith consults with colleges on diversity. She says instead, it's a time to be committed. And she says the court's conservative supermajority ruling against the colleges is not a guarantee. They've had some very bad decisions recently, in my opinion. But this conservative wing is not a monolithic conservative wing. Keith points to a recent sex discrimination case in which two conservative justices sided with transgender people. For NPR News, I'm Kirk Carapeza in Boston. At least two Americans were killed over the weekend in the crush of a crowd celebrating Halloween in South Korea. At least 150 people died, and one of the Americans who perished is a student at the University of Kentucky. For member station WEKU, Sherry Lawson has more. Among the dead was a junior in the University of Kentucky's nursing program, Ann Gieske. UK's President Eli Capilouto sent a letter to the campus community saying, quote, We have been in contact with Ann's family and will provide whatever support we can now and in the days ahead as they cope with this indescribable loss, end quote. Capilouto says Gieske was a junior from northern Kentucky studying with an education abroad program in South Korea this semester. He says UK has a faculty member and two other students there this semester as well. He adds they have been contacted and are safe. For NPR News, I'm Sherry Lawson in Lexington, Kentucky. Russia says it is suspending its participation in the U.N.-brokered grain deal. This allowed stalled grain shipments to leave Ukrainian ports for other countries who badly need it. The deal was also brokered by Turkey. NPR's Fatmatanis reports from Istanbul, Russia suspended its part in the deal after some of its ships were attacked in the Black Sea. It's not over yet until Russia pulls out entirely, which, as you mentioned, they haven't. Uh, Turkish and U.N. officials, the brokers of this deal, are talking to Russia now. And according to the Turkish Defense Ministry, the Russian team and the inspectors that have been working on the deal are still here in Istanbul. But no new ships will be going to Ukraine to pick up the grain while this gets sorted out. NPR's Fatma Tanis reporting. Officials in Ukraine also say there's been a fresh wave of Russian missile strikes on that country today. Authorities in the capital, Kyiv, say the missile attacks have cut off power and water supplies to most city residents. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The town of Natick has stayed silent for more than two years about how it handled the case of a police officer accused of sexual assault. Officer James Quilty is facing three counts of indecent assault for allegedly groping a female dispatcher. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports that Natick has never publicly announced the accusations and withheld almost all of its records about the incident. Prosecutors say Natick police initially shrugged off the incident, and when the town eventually investigated, it decided to quietly keep the officer on the force. He only faced criminal charges after WBUR and a blogger asked for records of the probe. Mark Wynn is a retired lieutenant with the Nashville Police Department and an expert in police, domestic, and sexual violence. He says cities and towns can't hide incidents like this. How do you communicate outside of your agency to the general public who you are absolutely positively accountable to? And if the general public can't see what you're doing, then you've got a problem. WBUR has sued Natick for records related to the case. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Vice President Kamala Harris is heading to Roxbury this week. She's scheduled to campaign with Democrats, including gubernatorial candidate Maura Healey, ahead of the upcoming election. This will be the vice president's third visit to Massachusetts in recent months. The town of Amherst is moving closer to a plan on how to make reparations to residents of African heritage. A town committee is exploring ways to spend $2 million to tackle structural racism and achieve equity for black residents. Emil Karshabaz is a professor of Afro-American studies at UMass Amherst and is on the committee. He says he hopes the impact reaches beyond the town. What we hope is that as Amherst joins Evanston, joins the work being done across the country, Providence, the state of California, that it begins to build this momentum that can embolden Congress, that can embolden the executive branch. The committee's proposals are due next June. The D branch of the Green Line is back up and running for the Monday morning commute. It opened early Saturday, two days ahead of schedule, after an almost two-week-long shutdown. The T says construction on the D branch is done for the rest of the year, but more work is slated next year to upgrade tracks to improve safety. The time is six minutes past seven. WBUR supporters include Welland Montessori School, a Boston parent's family favorite, toddler to grade 8, inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at Welland.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. In sports, Patriots beat the Jets 22-17 in New Jersey yesterday. The Pats return home this Sunday to play the Indianapolis Colts. And the Celtics topped the Washington Wizards 112-94 at the Garden last night. The C's next game is Wednesday when they visit Cleveland. In our weather forecast, sunshine today. Highs in the 60s. Tonight, a few clouds for trick-or-treaters. Temperatures in the 50s. Tomorrow, some morning showers, clouds in the afternoon. Highs in the upper 60s and sunshine Wednesday with temperatures in the mid-60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. A little more than a week from the end of voting in midterm elections, and Democrats are fighting an uphill battle to retain control of Congress. Republicans need a net pickup of just five seats to take back the House. The race for the Senate is closer, but Republicans are growing more hopeful there as well. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here with us uh, this morning. Domenico, historically, the president's party loses ground in that first midterm. Supreme Court's decision, though, this summer overturning Roe v. Wade seemed to swing things back toward Democrats. But how has that changed the past few weeks? Yeah, I mean, look, undoubtedly, Dobbs, uh, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe was a political earthquake in these elections that sent Democratic enthusiasm way up. But, you know, partially what we're seeing here is kind of part of the natural ebb and flow of any election cycle. You know, with about three weeks to go is when people start really paying attention. And the question, you know, is really going to be whether Democrats can keep that enthusiasm up to keep pace with Republicans. What we've seen in polling in many places is that it's not so much that Democrats are not gaining enthusiasm. They are as we get closer to crunch time, but that Republicans really are pulling further ahead with their levels of enthusiasm. Uh, and a big thing, uh, you know, helping Republicans with that is that we've seen over the last few weeks a truckload of money dumped in by Republican outside groups to boost Republican candidates on the airwaves in states that have key Senate races. You know, for example, a group tied to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, the Senate Leadership Fund, has dropped more than $50 million in just a couple weeks and overall spent almost a, almost a quarter billion dollars to boost some struggling Trump-backed uh, Republican candidates in places like Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, North Carolina, and Ohio. Okay, right now, the Senate is a 50-50 split, which means if Republicans take just one seat, they take control. What are the key races to watch? Well, the two Democratic targets are Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Republicans look to be in better shape in Wisconsin with Senator Ron Johnson, who's not very well liked in the state, but he's running a pretty gritty campaign in what's a politically polarized state. So getting out your base is really important. Uh, Republicans are laser focused on Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. So we're talking about five races that really are what are expected to decide the Senate, and they're expected to be super close. Pennsylvania really is so important to Democrats' chances to hold the Senate because if the Democratic candidate there, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, is able to pull it out there against the celebrity TV doctor Mehmet Oz, then even if Johnson holds on in Wisconsin, Republicans would have to win two of three of Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona to take control. Now, it's possible, but it's just a little bit harder if Pennsylvania is suddenly off the board. Uh, but no one I've talked to on either side is confident that they know what's going to happen here. And we really have to stress you know, for our audience that it's very possible, if not likely, we won't know control of the Senate for days, if not weeks. I mean, not only are these elections expected to be close, but in Georgia, for example, it might not even be decided until December 6th, because, you know, if no one gets above 50 percent, it will go to a runoff. All right. Different story in the House, though. Republicans need five seats to flip that. And it's widely expected to happen. But could we see a, another red wave like in 2010? That was uh, President Obama's first midterm when Republicans won 63 seats. Well, 63 seats is probably unlikely. First of all, after redistricting, the field is much narrower than it was then. Only about 60 seats are even in play now as compared to over 100 back then. So what we're talking about here, possibly the Cook Political Report, for example, does forecasting estimates of these races. And they're looking at about 12 to 25 seats for Republicans, and they've upped that projection in the past week or so. There are about seven races already where Republicans are already thought to be heavy favorites. So that would be enough to know 
on election night, but we likely won't know the full height of any Republican wave if there is one for days or more because some of these races are expected to be super close across the country. Uh, you know, and in California, for example, on election night, likely very tight races. That'll mean we won't have exact numbers that day. Remember, certified results won't happen for weeks in many cases. That's exactly what's supposed to happen and happens in every election. All right. We will check back with you. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. And, of course, we'll have ongoing results of that election on Wednesday morning right here on Morning Edition. Now, two news items spread over the weekend. One, federal agencies warned of possible political violence at election time. And police arrested a man who entered the House of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and attacked her husband. Paul Pelosi was hospitalized. Michael Jensen joins us next. He leads a team on domestic radicalization for the University of Maryland's National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Good morning. Good morning. I'm trying to keep this in perspective. Uh, Political violence happens. Disturbed individuals lash out. How much worse is the threat, though, than normal? Yeah, we've in recent years witnessed a tremendous increase in the amount of extremism and extremism motivated crime in the United States. So just last week, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security released a joint report in which the FBI noted that they did more than double the number of domestic terrorism investigations in 2021 than they did in 2020. In 2020, less than 200 individuals were arrested for domestic terrorism crimes, and in 2021, it was more than 800. A lot of that is due to the January 6th investigation, which remains the largest uh, domestic terrorism investigation in U.S. history. But even outside sources like the one that we maintain at the University of Maryland has shown that in recent years, we're looking at, on average, about a 200 percent increase in the number of individuals being arrested for extremist crimes. You mentioned January 6th. Are these mainly people who sincerely believe the lies they've been told about the election and Donald Trump's defeat in that election? Um, some. Um, others have known links to extremist organizations. So, of course, there's the high-profile cases of Stuart Rhodes and Enrique Tarrio, the leaders of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. But our research has shown that more than 300 of the defendants that are being tried in the January 6th investigation have links to known extremist organizations. So that's over, you know, a third of the individuals. That's an incredibly large number. Those individuals are motivated by more than just election denialism or the belief that the election was stolen. They have brought or political goals, um, you know, uh, revolving from anti-immigration, the protection of the Second Amendment, um, or anti-authority, anti-government views. Oh, now this is very interesting because we know the facts here. We know that dozens of courts upheld the election results. We know that thousands of election officials from both political parties upheld the election results. But you're telling me that there are some individuals who have a specific other agenda, other political interest to push this, this narrative that, that, that Trump was somehow robbed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we see is a real mixing of ideologies here. So it's not just election denialism or conspiracy theories around the election. That's being mixed in with anti-Semitic narratives. It's being mixed in with broader anti-government goals around education policy, public health policy, immigration policy. Um, These are groups that have been around long before January 6th, and their goals predate the 2020 election. Um, And so the election just mixes in with their broader set of goals. 
Where does David DePape fit into this? And I'll remind people, he is the individual who's been arrested for entering the home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco, somehow attacking Paul Pelosi with a hammer. Uh, he was quoted saying, where is Nancy? He had zip ties reportedly. And uh, there were there, a search of his Internet history showed election denial and various other things. Where does he fit into what you're saying? Well, what we know from his posting behavior is that he really, um, you know, symbolizes this mix of ideological commitments. So we know that he was posting conspiracy theories about the election, about COVID-19, um, but that he was also posting uh, anti-Semitic statements on the platform or white supremacist statements on various platforms. So he was really mixing these extreme ideologies that apparently motivated his behavior. But I think the, you know, the more important thing to recognize about this individual um, is that this is happening within the context of a tremendous increase in threats being made against public officials and our elected representatives. So the FBI has been warning since the 2020 election that they are seeing more and more of these cases of individuals threatening um, not only the highest ranking elected representatives and public officials, but very low level ones, school board members, health board members, local representatives. Are low-level election officials properly protected, do you think, in the coming days? Uh, they, they aren't. You have to imagine that the, the average school board member or the average you know, local county uh, election official isn't walking around with something like the Secret Service or Marshal Service protecting them. They, they don't have any protection uh, at all. And so if an individual sets their sights on one of these targets, there's not a lot stopping them um, from accessing these individuals. These are public individuals um, that have to be public in order to do their job so they are accessible targets, um, but they don't have the level of protection mm -hmm of somebody like the president or, or another high-ranking official. Michael Jensen, senior researcher into domestic terrorism at the University of Maryland. Thanks so much. Thank you. Government officials in the Indian state of Gujarat say the collapse of a bridge has killed more than 130 people. Sushmita Patak reports. Ambulance sirens and screams filled the air in the town of Morbi Sunday evening after the cables of the suspension bridge snapped sending the middle span of the bridge tumbling into the Machu River. Onlookers waded into the water to pull out anyone they could. Local resident Ajay was trying to save two children, but he says only one survived. I shudder to think of what the families must be feeling right now, he told local news channel India TV. Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who's from Gujarat, called the collapse one of the most painful things in his life. He's expected to visit Morbi Tuesday. As divers continue to look for those still missing, investigators are beginning to examine why the bridge snapped. A video taken earlier Sunday shows people packed closely together on the bridge. It's a popular tourist destination, and the crowd was unusually large yesterday because it was the weekend, and it's the festive season in India. Gujarat's Home Minister Harsh Sangvi told reporters his government has opened an investigation. The bridge was from the late 19th century, and it had recently been renovated. It reopened just last week. Sangvi said the private company in charge of maintaining the bridge will face criminal charges. The head of the local municipality told Indian media that his team did not sign off on reopening the bridge. But the company claims tourists had been swaying it, which caused the collapse. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Meerut, India. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, we'll have more on the legal battle over affirmative action, which involves Harvard. That case goes before the U.S. Supreme Court today. And in about 20 minutes, the dearth of local news has brought forward dozens of partisan newspapers, especially in competitive election districts. We take a look at what's happening in Illinois. It's 20 minutes past 7. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org cars, and thanks. Now the forecast. Meteorologist Danielle Noyes says the morning fog will eventually burn off and it'll stay dry for trick-or-treating tonight. No tricks to this Halloween forecast. High temperatures will top out in the mid to upper 60s this afternoon, about 10 degrees above average, and then only gradually cool back into the upper 50s after the sun sets for trick-or-treaters. So there's no real need to get super bundled up this year. Skies will be overcast and look a little bit ominous at times, but will stay dry through trick-or-treating until late evening when an isolated sprinkle or shower is possible. There'll be more scattered action that comes in overnight into early Tuesday. Any showers should be gone by lunchtime. Time tomorrow. It'll be mostly cloudy after that with temperatures in the mid 60s and it should remain dry for the rest of the week. It is 49 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D A T A I K U.com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Supreme Court reconsiders affirmative action in higher education today. Some members of the conservative supermajority have signaled they are ready to overturn decades of precedent. Here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. In 1978, Justice Lewis Powell set out the baseline for what constitutes permissible affirmative action today. Citing Harvard University as the model, He said that in evaluating applicants for admission, race could not be the determinative factor, but could be one of many factors. Awareness of the need for diversity means only that in choosing among thousands of academically qualified applicants, the committee with a number of criteria in mind pays some attention to the distribution that should be made among many types and categories of students. In a series of cases since then, the court has more or less stuck to that principle, adding that each applicant must be evaluated in an individual and holistic way. But today, Harvard's admission system is itself under the judicial microscope, along with the Affirmative Action Program at the University of North Carolina, which until the 1950s didn't accept any black applicants. The two cases overlap, but ultimately at the heart of both is the same principle. What constitutes racial discrimination? 
On one side is Students for Fair Admissions, SFA, an organization founded by legal activist Edward Bloom, who for decades has fought what he sees as racial preferences in school admissions. What is happening on college campuses today is that applicants are treated differently because of their race and ethnicity. Some are given thumbs up, some are given thumbs down. On the other side, Harvard and UNC contend that in addition to academic excellence, they aim for a student body that's demographically diverse and that they need not ignore a candidate's race any more than they do a candidate's home state, national origin, family background, or special achievements. The individual holistic approach to college admissions has been used by a huge variety of colleges, large and small, including the U.S. military academies and 57 Catholic colleges and universities that have filed a brief endorsing affirmative action programs. That said, the Supreme Court's new conservative supermajority presents a daunting legal mountain for UNC and Harvard to climb. That's why the academic institutions are making some new arguments, focused on the conservative doctrine of original intent. The court's newest member, Katanji Brown-Jackson, pointed to that history in a different case about race last month. When I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause in a race-conscious way. I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required. Indeed, Harvard and UNC point to colorblind language that was originally proposed for the 14th Amendment and rejected by Congress. And they note that the same Congress that passed the 14th Amendment also adopted race-conscious laws giving special benefits to African Americans in areas from education to land distribution. SFA's Bloom counters that the whole idea of the 14th Amendment was colorblindness, and he repeatedly cites the court's 1954 Brown v. Board of Education case declaring racial segregation of public schools unconstitutional. The Constitution and our civil rights laws forbid the consideration of race in higher education. Harvard's co-counsel William Lee replies that the court's 1954 schools case dealt with the exclusion of students based solely on their race, not with actions aimed at bringing the races together. The use of Brown is really turning things on its head. SFA's lawsuit against Harvard is based in significant part on the charge that Harvard discriminates against Asian Americans, who on average have better board scores and grades than any other ethnic or racial group, including whites. Bloom points to Harvard's infamous history of limiting the number of Jews, by imposing a Jewish quota until the early 1960s. Today, at Harvard, Asians are the new Jews. SFA's Bloom's initial filings in the case relied heavily on the work of Berkeley professor Jerome Carabell and his book about Jewish quotas at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. But Carabell disputes Bloom's thesis, noting that the intended results of the Jewish quotas was to send the number of Jews on those campuses spiraling downward. Nothing like that has happened. And in fact, the Asian American enrollments have constantly risen. And so right now we're in a situation where the entering class at Harvard is 28% Asian American. 
Harvard relies heavily on the fact that SFA's charges of discrimination were tested in court during a 15-day trial in which Harvard's dean and members of the admissions committee were subjected to cross-examination, and hundreds of thousands of emails were produced for examination. The conclusion upheld by the appeals court was that there was, quote, no evidence of discrimination against Asian Americans. A federal judge in North Carolina reached a similar conclusion for UNC. The Supreme Court's eventual decision in these two cases could have enormous ripple effects beyond the question of college admissions. Harvard's co-counsel Lee notes that if the court repudiates affirmative action in college admissions, similar policies in employment could be next. The decision in which we will lose dispositively is going to open up a Pandora's box across the country and across institutions and industries. For Edward Bloom, this is not a new question. Before this fight, he engineered a successful challenge to the Voting Rights Act. When asked what's next on his agenda, he was coy. I don't have anything planned. I'm 70 years old. I am getting close to the end of my tether. But last year, he formed a new organization, which has already filed two lawsuits to challenge diversity goals on corporate boards. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, Russia has threatened to pull out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative. That move threatens to have a profound impact on global food prices. It's 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dublin School, Southern New Hampshire Boarding and Day School. Rooted in curiosity, kindness, and fun. Grades 9 through 12. Open house November 6th. DublinSchool.org and Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in South Korea are investigating the deaths of more than 150 people who were crushed in a large Halloween celebration. NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Seoul says two Americans are among the dead. President Yoon Song-yeol and his wife prayed at an altar to the victims in front of City Hall, part of a week-long period of mourning. All but one of the dead have now been identified. Investigators are looking for clues as to what caused the packed crowds to surge into an 11-and-a-half-foot-wide alley, crushing the revelers, the largest group of whom were in their 20s. The man suspected of attacking the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expected to be charged today in California. He's identified as 42-year-old David DePappy. Police believe DePappy broke into the Pelosi's home in San Francisco and assaulted 82-year-old Paul Pelosi with a hammer. He underwent surgery for a fractured skull. Police are still investigating a motive. It sparked a debate in some circles about political rhetoric. Here's Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. 
The sort of rhetoric that we've heard in too many ways and too many places can lead to uh, violence by a small number of Americans who think that when we describe our political opponents as our enemies, uh, we're calling for them to be attacked. Coons was speaking to Fox News Sunday. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today involving Harvard University's use of affirmative action in college admissions. The case argues that using race as a factor in evaluating applicants is unconstitutional. The argument dates back to 2014 when a group alleged that Harvard deliberately excluded qualified Asian American applicants. Advocates say affirmative action helps cultivate diverse college campuses. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is calling for consequences after the attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Presley has faced threats herself and says her thoughts are with the Speaker and Pelosi's family. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports. Presley was home in Boston this weekend campaigning for re-election. Presley calls the attack undemocratic and compared it to the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. She's calling for a peaceful response to hate speech and violence. It's a sad day. It's a worrisome time. But, you know, our response to this is not to to retreat and go in the corner. Our response is accountability, consequences. Our response is voting. <laughs> you know, that that's really what I believe ultimately. Presley has also been the target of death threats since being elected to federal office in 2018. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Refunds from the state's excess tax revenue will start to hit bank accounts tomorrow. About 3 million taxpayers are expected to get refunds worth about 14 percent of what they paid in income tax last year. The state says the money will be sent out on a rolling basis through mid-December. Taxpayers who filed their 2021 taxes don't need to do anything else to be eligible. If you haven't filed, you have until September of next year to do so. The time is 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Park School Brookline, where curious early learners grow into confident, engaged scholars. Open house for grades pre-K through 8 on November 6th parkschool.org. In sports, the Patriots' record improved to 4-4 four and four yesterday. They beat the Jets on the road 22-17. to 17. Patriots will be in Foxborough next Sunday to play the Indianapolis Colts. And the Celtics snapped a two-game losing streak last night. They beat the Washington Wizards 112-94 to 94 at the Garden. The C's next game is Wednesday in Cleveland. In our weather forecast, partly sunny today with highs in the mid-60s. For trick-or-treaters tonight, cloudy with temperatures in the 50s. Looks like showers overnight and into tomorrow morning. It should be mostly cloudy tomorrow afternoon. Highs in the 60s and sunshine on Wednesday with temperatures in the mid-60s. It is 48 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Russia says it's suspending its participation in the grain deal that's helped keep a global food shortage from getting worse. The agreement created a safe humanitarian corridor to export Ukrainian grain. Moscow's decision, though, came after it accused Ukraine of attacking the Russian Black Sea fleet. Here to tell us more, we're joined by NPR's Fatma Tennis in Istanbul. So suspended is uh, not necessarily mean withdrawing, at least not yet. So what does this mean for the grain deal? Well, it's not over yet until Russia pulls out entirely, which, as you mentioned, they haven't. Uh, Turkish and U.N. officials, the brokers of this deal, are talking to Russia now. And according to the Turkish Defense Ministry, the Russian team and the inspectors that have been working on the deal are still here in Istanbul. But no new ships will be going to Ukraine to pick up the grain while this gets sorted out. Uh, Meanwhile, the U.N. Security Council will convene today on the grain deal. This was requested by Russia. The deal was set to expire on November 19th and the parties were already in the middle of intense negotiations to extend it. Uh, I spoke with Turkish President Erdogan's chief advisor, Ibrahim Kalin, about this, and he said that Erdogan had brought up the grain deal with Putin just a couple weeks ago and had received a favorable response then, uh, but they were prepared for a tough round of talks to keep Russia in, and here's what he said. We will continue our efforts and intensify our diplomatic uh, initiatives uh, to make sure that uh, this is renewed before its expiration date. Russia is also facing pressure from the international community to resume its participation in the deal as everybody is worried about food prices going up. So why is Russia doing this now? Well, Russia has told the U.N. and Turkey that it can no longer guarantee the safety of ships in the Black Sea ostensibly because of this drone attack. But, you know, they've been unhappy with the deal for a while now because under the original terms, they were supposed to get some relief, too, uh, in terms of their own fertilizer exports and their agriculture exports. Um, And they're complaining that it's not really working out for them. So Russia could be trying to get a better deal here. Uh, Regardless, I've been hearing from Turkish and U.N. officials that both Ukraine and Russia want and need this to happen. For Ukraine, of course, it's a lifeline to their crippled wartime economy. But Russia needs the deal, too. Um, to get its own exports out, yes, but also to retain favor with the global south, where many countries haven't participated in sanctions against Russia and are dependent on these shipments. What's at stake if Russia withdraws? Frankly, a lot. Uh, First, there are countries who are really vulnerable should the deal fall apart, like Egypt and Lebanon. And it's not just there. This will be felt all over the world. But, you know, there's another level to this. Uh, I spoke with the U.N. coordinator for the deal, Amir Abdullah, and here's how he put it. It's very important that it is an area and a platform where Russia and Ukraine are talking to each other to achieve a very noble aim. In fact, it's one of the only platforms where they're talking and working together. That's NPR's Fatma Tennis. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Illinois residents have been receiving newspapers they have not paid for, or in many cases even heard of before. Each bears the tagline, Real Data, Real News. So they say. These are partisan news outlets taking advantage of the erosion of local news. NPR's David Falkenflick reports they're part of a nationwide phenomenon. Before his retirement, Bernard Schoenberg reported about the origins of these papers as a columnist for the Springfield State Journal Register. There are more than 30 publications, most of them online, but some of them during this election season going to people's mailboxes. Schoenberg was a journalist in Illinois for his entire 44-year career. Newsrooms throughout the state have withered, including his. Some have shut down. These newer publications lie dormant, then they spring up at election time. 
They sure look like old-fashioned local broadsheet newspapers. Nothing flashy, but they've got color photos and charts. So you get these glaring headlines of what's so terrible about our tax system right now or what's bad about a Democratic governor. The coverage all points in a single direction, hard right. The top headline on the West Cook News right here, it's going to be literally the end of days. That piece hammered Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker up for re-election. This is Republican propaganda and in some instances just outright lies. That's Pritzker campaign spokeswoman Natalie Edelstein. The information being presented is, you know, intentionally set up to mislead people. It looks like it's independent local news. But in reality, when you read the content, it's playing on people's emotions and fear and trying to, you know, scare people. Crime fears, trans rights, COVID policies, all hot button issues punched by Pritzker's Republican opponent. Here he is, State Senator Darren Bailey. These uh, newspapers that are circulating the state that are full of facts and truth, and Governor Pritzker has the gall to call it a lie. Bailey was speaking there to Chicago talk show host Dan Proft. Proft's political action committee has spent millions to aid Bailey, and he subsidizes the papers. Proft told NewsNation TV his readers don't trust mainstream news organizations. We provide angles to stories and information that you don't get from left-leaning or left or not-so-leaning, just hard left, News outlets, they're all sharing a brain, and we're providing a different perspective on some of the issues that are salient in people's lives. Retired reporter Bernie Schoenberg says the nod at salience is deceptive. There is other information in the publication that makes it look local, like what employees in government agencies are making a lot of money or what houses sold for a lot of money. And it's just things that you can pick up off the Internet. And they use bots to do it. I haven't been able to reach a single reporter from the Illinois papers. Consider Kane County reporters Lori A. Lubert. Fifteen years ago, a reporter at the Virginian Pilot had the same name. Lubert has no account on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Unusual for a reporter. Lori, if you're out there, call me. Love to hear from you. Now, for those who say that new publications arise from backers on both sides, well, you've got a point. I mean, if we are to be completely blunt about it, we are seeing... Folks on the left adopt this tactic as well now. Pri Bengani is a senior research fellow at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. She says one key difference is scale. In her new report released today, she tracks the backers of a closely linked network of conservative papers. She counts 64 such pro-democratic newspapers and news sites around the country, compared to more than 1,200 right-wing outlets that form a vast echo chamber. You end up with this surround sound effect where if people are hearing the same things in multiple places, are they then more likely to believe it? Bengani says she can't measure how influential this echo chamber will prove to be, but she says these partisan papers are blanketing people who want to read local news and have fewer choices than ever to do so. David Folkenflik, NPR News. We're glad you've joined us on your NPR station, which brings you Morning Edition. You can continue following NPR News throughout the day on this station, and you can also find us on social media. Visit the Morning Edition Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter, where Rachel Martin is at Rachel NPR, A. Martinez is A. Martinez LA, Layla Fottle is Layla Fottle, and I'm NPR Inskeep. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, how the abortion issue is affecting Virginia's 7th Congressional District, where Latino voters may have a decisive say in this election. In our weather forecast, partly sunny today, temperatures in the mid-60s. Tonight, a few clouds with lows in the 50s. Tomorrow, scattered showers in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, and temperatures in the 60s. It is 48 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In business news, the average 30-year mortgage interest rate in the U.S. is above 7 percent for the first time in two decades. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports on the effect it's having on the Massachusetts real estate market. Livia Monteforti with Compass Real Estate says rising interest rates have cooled off the market, so there's less of what she calls irrational behavior from buyers, including trying to buy a home sight unseen. The home inspections are coming back. The financing contingencies are coming back. The negotiations over price, that's coming back. She believes it's still a good time for sellers, but they need to be proactive. Pricing is key. Making sure it shows in the best light. Doing all the little things to increase the value of your home. Monteforti adds one thing still in the seller's favor is that the number of homes on the market remains near an all-time low. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. Allendale Farm in Brookline says it will voluntarily recognize the unionization efforts of its employees. A group of employees began the effort to organize earlier this month. The workers are asking for better pay and benefits. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Rachel Martin. I'm Amy Martinez. Latino voters seem to drift away from Democrats in 2020. Will the abortion issue, though, bring them back? Polling shows it's a top concern. Ben Pavier from member station VPM reports on how that's playing out in one Virginia district where Latino voters could decide the race. It's standing room only at a 90s-themed restaurant on the outskirts of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The crowd is here to see Yesley Vega, a Republican running for Virginia's 7th Congressional District. Vega delivers a blistering attack at Democrats and the media, who she says are out to get her. But guess what? What's been predestined for us in heaven, no man or liberal can take from us. Vega, whose parents immigrated from El Salvador, headed Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's efforts to reach Latino voters in last year's election. Now he's campaigning with her. This year, we are going to smash all records and send the first Latino Virginian to Congress from the Commonwealth. Garcia Fuentes is one of those cheering in the crowd. She says she and Vega went to the same church growing up. 
first of all, she has that guidance of God, because everything comes from God. Like Vega, Fuentes' father is a pastor of an evangelical church. She says her faith guides all her decisions, even political ones, especially on abortion. Once you put a child in your wound, that's it. He needs to come to life because nobody has a right to kill a child. Fuentes says she'd like to see Congress ban the procedure. And Vega seemed to agree, saying during the Republican primary that she found liberal states' abortion laws, quote, unacceptable. But speaking to reporters after the event, Vega distances herself from a national abortion ban. It's settled law. The Supreme Court got it right, and now they've reverted that back to the states. And so it's a state issue. It's not a federal issue anymore. Her campaign staff shoes me away when I try to ask a follow-up question. Abortion is a touchy topic for Vega, especially after Axios published a recording of her seeming to downplay the risk of someone getting pregnant after a rape. Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger is drawing a sharp contrast with Vega on reproductive rights. For a woman who may choose abortion, that is up to her and her medical professional. The former CIA officer won her seat in 2018 in an upset, casting herself as a pragmatist willing to work with Republicans. New political maps pushed her district north toward the outer edges of Washington, D.C. It's also become more diverse. Almost one in five voters identify as Latino, and almost half aren't white. Spanberger's campaign has tried to speak directly to those voters with Spanish-language ads. Soy Abigail Spanberger, y ha sido un honor representar a las familias de Virginia en el Congreso. While Vega has run bilingual TV ads. And cut taxes. In Congress, I'll do the same. Mi nombre es Yesli Vega, y yo apruebo este mensaje. Both of those ads focus on the economy. Polling from Pew in August showed it topped the list of issues Latino voters rank as very important. It's top of mind for Sergio Del Castillo when I catch him leaving the grocery store. He normally votes for Democrats, but this year he's frustrated with both parties. Because they promise something, but they don't do it. <laughs> he says he's also worried about school safety and crime. When I ask him about the Supreme Court's decision on abortion rights, Del Castillo sounds much more like a Democrat. I hope that we win and get it back. That tracks with broader trends. Pew found abortion was a very important issue for 57% of Latino voters in August, up 15 percentage points since March. It's one reason some Democratic voters give for showing up on a recent Saturday morning for an event aimed at bilingual volunteers. Elizabeth Guzman, a Democratic delegate in the state legislature, warms up the crowd with some swipes but, at Vega. Being an elected official is beyond your skin color. It's beyond your last name. It's actually what you are going to do for that community. It's Elena Lane's first time volunteering for the campaign. She's a realtor and reliable Democratic voter. And she says the Supreme Court's decision was a real blow. I wanted to cry because it's something they took the right to, to a woman after 56 years. And that is not positive in the future of the country. It's not lost on Lane that abortion is now legal in her native Mexico. She believes the only way for the U.S. to protect abortion access is for voters to elect Democrats like Spanberger in November. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Fredericksburg, Virginia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up on Morning Edition, we meet a Cambridge author who studies how people use technology 
to try to remember the dead, and during his work, he's made a personal, uncanny connection. That's just ahead on Morning Edition. Later today at 11, it's Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is with me in the studio right now to tell us what's on the show today. Good morning. Good morning, Deb. I'm being very mindful because at the Boston Book Festival this weekend, I ran into a listener who said, you know, could you be a little less chipper at 7.45 in the morning? <laughs> because I'm really just getting started on my day. I get so. it. <laughs> so we have Jill Lepore today, a Harvard professor, also staff writer for The New Yorker. Uh, Lepore has a podcast called Last Archive and the new season's out. And one of the things it's diving into is how to and whether one should determine whether political ads should show up on social media based on how truthful they are. Um, so they're doing an experiment with high school students mm. um, to see if high school students could adjudicate that. And um, uh, the Cambridge Ringe and Latin high school students are kind of rock stars in this. So, All right. Good yeah. to hear. Good yeah. to hear. All right. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Thanks, Tiziana. Thanks, Deb. The midterm elections are right around the corner, and both parties are talking all about the economy. Democrats are building a better America for everyone, with an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out, where everyone does well. The president's just dead wrong. The economy's not doing great. The basic things that people need are just too expensive. I'm Anthony Brooks. What message will win with voters? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, partly sunny skies today, highs in the 60s. For trick-or-treaters tonight, it'll be cloudy with lows in the 50s. Some showers overnight, though, that will continue into tomorrow morning. After that, it'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow with temperatures in the upper 60s and sunshine on Wednesday with highs in the 60s. It is 48 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere. November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. So it's Halloween. Time for candy, ghost stories, and thoughts of spirits. Throughout history, people have tried to reach out to spirits through seances and Ouija boards. WBUR's Andrea Shea met a Cambridge author who embedded himself in how we've used technology to try to connect with ghosts. What he discovered is uncanny. Scary movies and shows have long been filled with haunted communication devices, like the toy telephone in the 1960s Twilight Zone episode, Long Distance Call. I heard her. Who? She was there. She was there on the phone. She didn't say anything. That left an impression on Peter Biebergall when he was a kid. So did the 80s movie Poltergeist, with its story about spirits entering a family's home through their television. Of course they're going to use the TV set. This is the hearth of the home. 
Biebergall has been studying religion and the supernatural for 20 years. He says throughout history, real people have tried using all kinds of new technologies to cross the veil. Their efforts are the subject of his latest book, Strange Frequencies. My work is not about trying to prove them wrong or make them look silly. I just want to be able to show how culture, for as long as we have been human, have attempted through ritual, and in this case technology, to interact with some form of the spirit world. Biebergall traces this back to the 1800s when the spiritualist movement went viral. They would say spirits are with us all the time. They're sort of just waiting for us to come up with the right technologies to be able to reveal themselves to us. The camera's invention gave rise to spirit photography. Victorian-era practitioners said they could capture images of people's dead relatives. After radio broadcasting came along in the early 20th century, researchers scanned its frequencies for paranormal messages. Because Biebergall is like a gonzo journalist of the occult, he even carried out his own experiments. Do you have any message for me? He found instructions online to create a ghost-detecting radio. Did you hear the little skeleton at the very end? <laughs> Nowadays, there are the apps. He pulls one up called the Ghost Voice Box Communicator. Should we ask if there are spirits in the room? It could be on the radio. Sounded like it said, I'm desperate. While the apps are creepy, Biebergall says the bereaved usually seek comfort when trying to contact those who've been lost. An electronic voice phenomena researcher encouraged him to get more personal by trying to record audio of his father, who'd recently passed away. And as reasonably skeptical as I am, the last thing I wanted to do was hear the voice of my dead father coming through a tape recorder, <laughs> right? But in the service of the subject, so that I could better write about it, I decided I would give it a shot. So Biebergall dug out his father's old reel-to-reel -reel tape machine from storage, set it up, and said, Dad, if you're here, I'm going to leave the tape recorder on. I'm going to leave if you want to give me a message, and I'll come back and I'll listen. Biebergall went out to get a cup of coffee and tried to remain neutral. I do think that even then there was a part of me that was hoping for something. I came home, I turned off the recorder, I rewound it, and I listened. And there was nothing. Then he amplified the recording through his computer. Still nothing. But as Biebergall was about to pack up the recorder, he noticed an old reel. With his wife and son sitting nearby, he threaded the tape through his dad's machine and pressed play. One, two. Turns out it was his mother. <laughs> when she was probably in her early 20s, singing into this very tape recorder. My son said, who's that? I said, oh my gosh, that's your grandmother who you never got to meet. She had died a couple of years before he was born. And suddenly I realized that it did work. 
that I was in this moment hearing the voice of my mother who had passed away and my son who had never heard her voice before was hearing it for the first time. just absolutely chilling. Biebergall says this serendipity opened him up to the mystery of things. He thinks that's what he really wanted, and he'll treasure his father's forgotten machine that brought his mother's voice back to life. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. In our weather forecast, partly sunny today. Temperatures in the mid-60s for trick-or-treaters tonight. Clouds and lows in the 50s. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Authorities in South Korea investigate what caused the crowd surge that killed more than 100 people during Halloween festivities. It's Monday, October 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Brazil's former leader, Lula, wins the country's presidential election. Also, thousands of state legislative seats are on the ballot this year, and they're increasingly significant. It's become very difficult for Congress to reach decisions, and so that has left the field vacant for state legislatures to act. Plus, how Natick officials kept quiet the case of a police officer accused of sexual assault. That they would put this person in a position where they're walking around as an armed enforcer of the law when they are accused of a serious violent crime is very disturbing to me. And scientists work to enhance the effects of the drug ketamine in treating depression. It's 801. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is congratulating Luis Inacio Lula da Silva for winning Brazil's presidential election. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports da Silva narrowly defeated Brazil's incumbent president, sparking celebrations by his supporters. Crowds around Brazil's largest city erupted on news of da Silva's win. A little more than two million votes separated da Silva from current president Jair Bolsonaro. Da Silva told supporters he will govern for everyone. We'll work tirelessly for a Brazil where love prevails over hate where the truth beats lies and hope wins over fear, he said. The election was dirty and filled with disinformation. Bolsonaro, whose slogan was God, family, and country, tried to portray da Silva as a corrupt, anti-religious communist. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Sao Paulo, Brazil. At the U.S. Supreme Court today, the justices are revisiting the question of affirmative action in higher education. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. 
For more than four decades, the Supreme Court has said that while race may not be dispositive in college admissions, it may be considered as one of many factors, factors such as special talents in science, music, or athletics, or even when an applicant's parents went to the school. While this case was brought against two elite universities, Harvard and the University of North Carolina, this so-called holistic approach is used by the vast majority of colleges and universities, large and small, religious and non-religious, and even the U.S. military academies. But three of the justices in the court's conservative supermajority have dissented from the court's previous rulings that allowed these programs, and the three are now joined by three Trump appointees. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Opening arguments are expected today in the criminal trial of former President Donald Trump's family business. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports from New York. Two Trump business entities are accused of taking part in a 16-year scheme to avoid paying local, state, and federal taxes. The star witness will be a former co-defendant who pleaded guilty in August, longtime Trump Organization chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. He remains on the Trump payroll, and he pledged to testify truthfully in exchange for a lighter sentence. Donald Trump is not a defendant, but jurors have been told they will hear witness testimony about the former president and see documents with his signature. Trump has said his companies did nothing wrong. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. Separately, a group of protesters is suing over an incident from 2015. They say they were roughed up by Trump's security guards at a protest outside Trump Tower in New York. They allege Trump influenced the guards. He's denied that. The case has been delayed for seven years. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Staffing shortages at Massachusetts hospitals are forcing patients to wait longer for care. Hospitals are struggling to fill 19,000 jobs. That's according to a new analysis from the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports that hospital leaders are warning they may have to cut services if they can't find enough workers. The report describes a health system in crisis with too many sick patients and not enough workers to take care of them. Steve Walsh is president of the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. At the emergency department right now, the wait time is longer than has historically been. So patients are beginning to experience it on a daily basis. Burned out healthcare workers are quitting, increasing the burden on the staff who stay. You have our caregivers who are already incredibly stressed trying to find the most acute cases to care for them first and make sure there's no catastrophic incidents in our community emergency departments. Hospitals are asking the state for more aid to help them cover labor costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. There are plenty of unfilled jobs at Boston Public Schools. The district reports 800 empty positions. About 175 of those are teaching positions. District leaders say high turnover and a worker shortage are mostly to blame. Superintendent Mary Skipper says BPS is committed to hiring the most qualified teachers possible. She tells the Boston Globe the district has already hired more than double the number of teachers as it did last year. A Natick police officer is facing charges of allegedly groping a female dispatcher during an after-work gathering. James Quilty is charged with three counts of indecent assault and battery. Middlesex County Prosecutor Suzanne Wiseman says the woman felt trapped. 
she didn't know how to get out of the situation with someone that she knew to be or perceived to be her boss, her supervisor, and someone that could impact her in a job that she really loved and wanted to keep. Quilty's attorney, Mike Perpall, told the judge the officer thought he had the woman's consent. He doesn't deny that there was physical contact between the two of them. I think his understanding of the situation at the time was significantly different than hers. Quilty is now on unpaid leave from the Natick police. Coming up this hour on Morning Edition, we'll have more on how the town of Natick tried to keep this case quiet, which experts say is too common. Changes are coming to what you can throw out in Massachusetts. Mattresses, clothes, and other textiles will no longer be allowed in the trash starting tomorrow. The bans are part of a goal from the state to reduce the amount of waste by 30% over the next decade. The state doesn't plan to enforce the ban on individuals, but will push back on businesses and municipalities that break the rules. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live, presenting flamenco superstar Farah Quito at the Berkeley Performance Center, one night only, November 2nd. Tickets at globalartslive.org. In sports, Patriots beat the Jets 22-17 to in New Jersey yesterday. The Pats are now 4-4. Four and four. They'll host the Indianapolis Colts next Sunday. And the Celtics beat the Washington Wizards 112-94 to at the Garden last night. The C's next game is Wednesday in Cleveland. In our weather forecast, partly sunny today. Temperatures in the mid-60s for trick-or-treaters tonight. Clouds with temperatures in the 50s. Some rain starting overnight and continuing into tomorrow morning. It should be most cloudy in the afternoon tomorrow though temperatures tomorrow in the 60s and sunshine starts wednesday and stays with us the rest of the week temperatures again in the 60s 48 degrees right now in boston wbur supporters include progressive progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages more at progressivecommercial.com this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Brazilians have ousted their far-right president. Jair Bolsonaro is out. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is back in. The leftist president known as Lula was massively popular in earlier terms, but went to prison for corruption. Later, a court threw out his conviction. And his supporters in Sao Paulo celebrated the one-time inmate's return to power. Brazil's election authority says Lula received a little under 51% of the vote. He won the two-person runoff despite Bolsonaro's threats not to accept the result. NPR's Kerry Khan is in Sao Paulo. Hey there, Kerry. Hi, good morning, Steve. What was it like when Lula won? It was quite a celebration here in Sao Paulo. Da Silva is 77 years old, and he took to one of the biggest streets in the city. It's called Boulevard um, Avenida Paulista, and it was just jammed, packed with people, about four city blocks full. And he tried to speak to the crowd with barely a voice left. He outlined what he will do in his presidency. This will be his third. He said he will end hunger, zero tolerance for deforestation in the Amazon, and most of all, he told the throngs of the crowd there that he will restore democracy to Brazil.
You could just hear him screaming at the top of his lungs as best as he could, and he just said that this victory is the most sacred because we defeated authoritarianism and fascism in this country. Democracy is back in Brazil. And, of course, he's a person Brazilians know very well. Very well, and he is a polarizing figure, as is the current president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro. But De Silva's political comeback now, is, it's just amazing. While he was very popular back in the 2000s when he was president, he, and credited with helping tens of millions of Brazilians out of poverty, his party was just embroiled in a huge corruption scandal, and De Silva himself went to jail for nearly two years. His conviction was later annulled. But uh, he has a lot of baggage with him. He has a solid base, especially among the poor. And some voters like Victor Castello, who I met celebrating at this bar with friends, said, you know, he isn't a diehard De Silva fan, but he says the last four years of Bolsonaro were just hell. We don't have a president. We have a, I don't know, a crazy guy. He do what he wants. So it's like he's a dictator that right now we have, we will change. De Silva won, uh, just squeaked by, it was 50, a little bit over 50% of the vote to 49%. That's just about 2 million voters. It was a very close race. Although we should note that, at least in American standards, 2 million is far more than an error would tend to correct, or a recount would tend to correct. So, is Bolsonaro the loser accepting the results? He didn't speak publicly last night. Uh, some of his allies did accept the defeat. Uh, Bolsonaro supporter Maria Pauli was drinking quietly with a few friends in Sao Paulo last night and just taking in the loss. Here's what she said. As pessoas olvidaram. Olvidaram todo. She said she just couldn't believe in just four years people forgot all the corruption of De Silva's party and brought him back. So how is the rest of the world taking this victory? Uh, world leaders immediately congratulated De Silva and hoping that that will thwart off any contestation by uh, Bolsonaro about the vote. We'll have to see today. Okay, Kerry, thanks so much for your reporting. You're welcome. And Pierre's Kerry Khan has been up all night in Sao Paulo. Latino voters seem to drift away from Democrats in 2020. Will the abortion issue, though, bring them back? Polling shows it's a top concern. Ben Pavier from member station VPM reports on how that's playing out in one Virginia district where Latino voters could decide the race. It's standing room only at a 90s-themed restaurant on the outskirts of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The crowd is here to see Yesley Vega, a Republican running for Virginia's 7th Congressional District. Vega delivers a blistering attack at Democrats and the media, who she says are out to get her. But guess what? What's been predestined for us in heaven, no man or liberal can take from us. Vega, whose parents immigrated from El Salvador, headed Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's efforts to reach Latino voters in last year's election. Now he's campaigning with her. This year we are going to smash all records and send the first Latino Virginian to Congress from the Commonwealth. Marcia Fuentes is one of those cheering in the crowd. She says she and Vega went to the same church growing up. First of all, she has that guidance of God because everything comes from God. Like Vega, Fuentes' father is a pastor of an evangelical church. She says her faith guides all her decisions, even political ones, especially on abortion. Once you put a child in your wound, that's it. He needs to come to life because nobody has a right to kill a child. Fuentes says she'd like to see Congress ban the procedure. And Vega seemed to agree, saying during the Republican primary that she found liberal states' abortion laws, quote, unacceptable. 
But speaking to reporters after the event, Vega distances herself from a national abortion ban. It's settled law. The Supreme Court got it right, and now they've reverted that back to the states. And so it's a state issue. It's not a federal issue anymore. Her campaign staff shoes me away when I try to ask a follow-up question. Abortion is a touchy topic for Vega, especially after Axios published a recording of her seeming to downplay the risk of someone getting pregnant after a rape. Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger is drawing a sharp contrast with Vega on reproductive rights. For a woman who may choose abortion, that is up to her and her medical professional. The former CIA officer won her seat in 2018 in an upset, casting herself as a pragmatist willing to work with Republicans. New political maps pushed her district north toward the outer edges of Washington, D.C. It's also become more diverse. Almost one in five voters identify as Latino and almost half aren't white. Spanberger's campaign has tried to speak directly to those voters with Spanish language ads. Soy Abigail Spanberger y ha sido un honor representar a las familias de Virginia en el Congreso. While Vega has run bilingual TV ads. And cut taxes. In Congress, I'll do the same. Mi nombre es Yesli Vega y yo apruebo este mensaje. Both of those ads focus on the economy. Polling from Pew in August showed it topped the list of issues Latino voters rank as very important. It's top of mind for Sergio Del Castillo when I catch him leaving the grocery store. He normally votes for Democrats, but this year he's frustrated with both parties. Because they promise something, but they don't do it. <laughs> he says he's also worried about school safety and crime. When I ask him about the Supreme Court's decision on abortion rights, Del Castillo sounds much more like a Democrat. I hope that we win and get it back. That tracks with broader trends. Pew found abortion was a very important issue for 57% of Latino voters in August, up 15 percentage points since March. It's one reason some Democratic voters give for showing up on a recent Saturday morning for an event aimed at bilingual volunteers. Elizabeth Guzman, a Democratic delegate in the state legislature, warms up the crowd with some swipes at Vega. Being an elected official is beyond your skin color. It's beyond your last name. It's actually what you are going to do for that community. It's Elena Lane's first time volunteering for the campaign. She's a realtor and reliable Democratic voter. And she says the Supreme Court's decision was a real blow. I wanted to cry because it's something they took the right to, to a woman after 56 years. And that is not positive in the future of the country. It's not lost on Lane that abortion is now legal in her native Mexico. She believes the only way for the U.S. to protect abortion access is for voters to elect Democrats like Spanberger in November. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Gardner, Montana depends on summer tourism. It is near Yellowstone National Park. But unprecedented flooding in June closed the road that connects the town to the park. Over the weekend, a newly paved road opened again which could be a lifeline. Here's Yellowstone Public Radio's Olivia Wheats. As we drive up the newly paved road just outside Gardner, you look down on the River Canyon, and it's there you see the old damaged road fading away. Look above, and the snow-capped hills come into view. We stopped by the side of this new road with Yellowstone Superintendent Cam Shawley. He says before they paved it, this was a 10-foot-wide dirt path from the 1870s. Are people going to want to drive it? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a gorgeous road. You know, people need to be careful. It's safe, but it's steep and it's curvy, just like a lot of mountainous passes and roads. 
The park was hoping to open the road in the middle of October to catch the last couple weekends of tourists, but Sholly says putting in guardrails and widening the path took a little longer. A little bit of a delay, but the reality is when you're dealing with something that's so dynamic, uh, to be able to do it in four months plus two weeks is, uh, I think, really incredible. We drove back to Gardner, and it's there that I met Caroline Slichter. And so now I'm just removing all my utensils that hang on the wall all summer. She's closing down her food truck for the season. This was her first year in business. She actually opened in May, just before the flooding. Locals and park employees kept the food truck going. During that time, Caroline could look out the back of her food truck and see the road taking shape. But with a lack of tourists, she even closed for a week in early October. Whenever you think it can't get slower, it does. <laughs> and it, it would be like that every day. I'd be like, oh, this ain't bad. Then the next day it'd be slower. The next day it'd be slower. The main tourism season is now over. But this new route will stay open for any winter visitors planning on cross-country skiing or taking in the local wildlife. That's keeping Superintendent Cam Shawley optimistic. We'll look forward to a good winter season and having two to 3,000 cars come down this road every single day uh, next summer. And for Caroline, now her food truck is closed for the time being, she'll actually be spending a lot of the winter on this new road. Her other job is driving a coach in Yellowstone National Park, carrying luggage and mail. For NPR News, I'm Olivia Wheats in Gardner, Montana. This afternoon on All Things Considered, some anti-vaccine candidates are on the ballot this fall. What do voters think? Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, how Natick officials kept quiet the case of a police officer accused of sexually assaulting a colleague. It's 20 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston, a bilingual, globally-minded education, preschool to grade 12. Sign up for open house events at gisbos.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The Supreme Court is taking up affirmative action in higher education. The case comes to the court because of the efforts of one key conservative. He's a legal strategist and has been very successful at uh, spotting and organizing cases and recruiting defendants. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, meteorologist Danielle Noy says it should be pleasant weather to celebrate Halloween today. Well, it's going to be mild out there today. High temperatures in the middle to upper 60s despite the lack of sunshine. We'll stay dry, though, through trick-or-treating, too, and very comfortable temperature-wise, only falling gradually into the upper 50s after the sun sets and mid-50s by later in the evening. I can't rule out an isolated sprinkler shower, but not until after 9 p.m. or so. More scattered shower activity is going to move in overnight into early Tuesday. 
And for the rest of the day, Tuesday, it should be partly cloudy with highs in the 60s. For Wednesday, sunshine with temperatures in the mid-60s. It is 49 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins. One family's pursuit of the American dream. From writer-director James Gray, everywhere Friday. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, a local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. This is NPR. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. For more than two years, the town of Natick has kept a secret. One of its police officers is accused of sexually assaulting a co-worker. The town has fought to keep those charges quiet. Experts say secrecy is common when officers are accused of sexual or domestic violence. WBUR's Ellie Jarmanning has more, starting with what happened in Natick and an advisory. This story includes descriptions of sexual assault. A handful of Natick police officers and a dispatcher met up after an overnight shift early in the pandemic. They found an empty parking lot near the station and had a few drinks. Before long, the gathering got out of hand. The female dispatcher told investigators that Officer James Quilty stuck his hand down her pants. When the other four officers left, he trapped her in her car, groped her, and forced her hand onto his pants over his penis. The victim repeatedly tried to de-escalate the situation, in fact, tried to leave the situation. That's Prosecutor Suzanne Wiseman in Middlesex Superior Court explaining what happened. The defendant blocked her, physically prevented her from leaving by placing himself in between the door jam and the car so that she couldn't leave, despite her numerous times saying that she just wanted to leave, she just wanted to leave. Still, prosecutors say a police supervisor initially shrugged off the allegations when she first heard about them. Then the town treated the matter as a case of sexual harassment and quietly agreed to keep Quilty on the force after a suspension. He didn't face criminal charges until 20 months later, after WBUR and a blogger asked for records about what happened. Even then, neither the town nor prosecutors publicly announced the indictment. It's incredibly disturbing. Cody Jacobs is a Natick town meeting member who ran unsuccessfully for select board this year. The fact that they would put this person in a position of public trust, like a police officer, where they're walking around Natick as an armed enforcer of the law when they are accused of a serious violent crime, is very disturbing to me. Experts say it's all too common for police around the country to simply try to sweep these kind of allegations under the rug. Mark Wynn is a retired lieutenant with the Nashville Police Department who has investigated and trained police on how to respond to domestic and sexual violence within their own ranks. This is really is the biggest ethics test we've ever faced. Because if you can't hold your own officers accountable for crimes... How are we going to hold the general public accountable for their crimes? How can they trust us? 
Wynne has been doing this work since the 80s, and research dating back that long shows the problem is enormous. In a study of two large departments, roughly 40% of officers admitted they'd acted violently towards their spouses or children. Leonor Boulin-Johnson, the researcher who led the study, says most police officers accused of domestic or sexual violence keep their jobs. Few are prosecuted. But she says researchers don't have enough recent data to know whether the problem has gotten better or gotten even worse. I don't think that departments are doing enough to address it or to see whether it has gone down, except that it seems like they're becoming more guarded. And therefore, my thought is that maybe the percentage is higher. And that's a terrible thought. Experts say the secrecy around police misconduct is especially significant in states like Massachusetts with weak public records laws. More than 40 departments refuse to release reports to WBUR of officers accused of sexual or domestic violence. They cited a privacy law originally intended to help victims, a law that only exists in Massachusetts. Justin Silverman is executive director of the New England First Amendment Coalition. He says all that secrecy is a problem. Without that kind of information, we don't know if the department acted in the public's interest or its own interest. We don't know if uh, there was any accountability and we, members of the public, are left in the dark. Meanwhile, Natick has refused to release any records of what happened in that parking lot in April 2020 and how it responded after. WBUR filed a lawsuit to get the records, including a copy of the town's investigation and a discrimination complaint filed by the dispatcher. She hasn't responded to messages from WBUR. So most of what we know about what happened that morning comes from criminal court records. Last December, Officer Quilty was indicted on three counts of indecent assault and battery. He has pleaded not guilty and has asked a judge to dismiss the indictments. In court in August, Quilty's attorney defended the officer's actions. Michael Perpal told a judge that Quilty thought he had his colleague's consent. His understanding of the events of that day were completely off. And he's embarrassed, but more so he's sorry about what happened on that particular day. Prosecutors scoffed at that explanation. Here is Prosecutor Wiseman again. There's nothing about that that could have been, quote unquote, misreading the room. This defendant took actual voluntary acts, physical assaultive acts towards another party. Even as the case plays out in court, town officials have mostly remained silent. Select Board Chair Paul Joseph says the town is hesitant to comment or release documents about the incident while the criminal case proceeds. We do, as a board, have confidence in the process we're undertaking, and we are trying to do it in the spirit of transparency and fairness to to the parties that are involved. The former select board candidate, Jacob, says he's disappointed by the secrecy. He hopes the town releases the records and explains its response. I think there's still time to get this right. There's a chance to still engage with the public about this and answer questions about what's going on. Until then, he says, it's hard for people like him to trust the town and the police. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. WBUR's Todd Wallach contributed to this report.
You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, scientists work to enhance the effects of the drug ketamine in treating depression. Coming Saturday, November 12th, to WBUR City Space, the latest book launch party for the Circle Round podcast. The latest book is called The Greatest Ball Game. It's based on a classic folktale from Native North American tribes. There will be a reading of the book along with live music. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 830. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Charges are expected to be filed today against the man suspected of attacking Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Authorities in Northern California say the 82-year-old was assaulted with a hammer after someone broke into the couple's home in San Francisco. He underwent surgery for a skull fracture. Paul Pelosi also suffered injuries to his arms and hand. Later this morning, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to examine the constitutionality of race as a factor in college admissions. Here's NPR's Nina Totenberg. While this case was brought against two elite universities, Harvard and the University of North Carolina, the so-called holistic approach is now used by the vast majority of colleges and universities, large and small, religious and non-religious, and even the U.S. military academies. But three of the court's conservative justices have dissented from the previous rulings, and they're now joined by three relatively new Trump appointees. If the Supreme Court rules that any race-conscious program in college admissions is unconstitutional, it could have enormous ripple effects beyond college admissions, casting legal doubt on affirmative action programs in employment and elsewhere. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Game three of the World Series is tonight between the Phillies and Astros. It's tied at one game apiece. This is NPR News. Georgia's gubernatorial candidates presented different visions for the state's future in their final debate yesterday. Raul Bally with member station WABE has more from Atlanta. One of the issues Republican incumbent Governor Brian Kemp focused on was the economy, blaming the Biden administration for inflation. Kemp said he would offer income tax rebates and property tax relief. Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams talked about repealing the six-week abortion ban that Kemp signed and expanding Medicaid in Georgia. Kemp heads into the final days of the campaign leading in the polls. Voters in more than three dozen states are choosing a governor next week. Russia says it's suspending participation in a deal that guarantees a safe humanitarian corridor for ships hauling grain from Ukrainian ports along the Black Sea. This follows an attack on a Russian fleet, which Moscow blames on Ukraine. NPR's Fatma Tanis is following developments. It's not over yet until Russia pulls out entirely. Uh, Turkish and UN officials, the brokers of this deal, are talking to Russia now. And according to the Turkish Defense Ministry, the Russian team and the inspectors that have been working on the deal are still here in Istanbul. But no new ships will be going to Ukraine to pick up the grain while this gets sorted out. Wall Street futures are lower this morning ahead of the open. Dow futures are off 160 points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. With Election Day eight days away, early and mail-in voting are underway in Massachusetts. This year's ballot questions are getting a lot of attention. Prominent Democrats are hitting the campaign trail across the state to support the law allowing undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's license. Among them, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Over the weekend, she said a yes vote on question four makes the roads safer for everyone. Public health, to me, is public safety. So it's so important that anyone who calls this Commonwealth home, um, regardless of immigration status, that they are tested, licensed, and insured. Opponents say giving undocumented people driver's licenses will encourage illegal immigration. For a comprehensive breakdown on the statewide ballot questions, visit WBUR.org slash voter guide. A case involving Harvard goes before the U.S. Supreme Court today. The case challenges the constitutionality of the use of race in college admissions. WBUR's Vanessa Ochavillo reports that affirmative action advocates believe that an adverse ruling could harm efforts to cultivate diverse colleges. Campuses. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law is a group that will defend the policy before the court in a companion case against the University of North Carolina. The group's president, Damon Hewitt, says race is just one factor colleges can use when considering admissions, and taking that away could have a negative ripple effect. As we've seen colleges and universities that have eliminated the lawful consideration of race, we've actually seen sharp declines in racial diversity and a percentage of students of color who are admitted. That harms not just those students, but also the educational experiences of all students. Over 100 Harvard students are expected in D.C. to rally in support of affirmative action as oral arguments take place. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillo. The city of Worcester is inspecting more than 6,000 manholes as part of an effort to fight the effects of climate change. Worcester's chief sustainability officer tells the Telegram and Gazette that the inspections are looking at how the city's stormwater system can handle heavy rainstorms. Those storms are expected to become more frequent and powerful because of climate change. The inspections are expected to take another 18 months. The time is 8.35. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. In sports, Nick Boak had five field goals for the Patriots yesterday, and they beat the Jets 22-17 to in New Jersey. The Pats will return home Sunday to face the Indianapolis Colts. Celtics beat the Washington Wizards 112-94 to at the Garden last night. The C's next game is Wednesday on the road in Cleveland. In our weather forecast, partly sunny skies today with highs in the 60s. For trick-or-treaters tonight, cloudy with lows in the 50s. Tomorrow, a chance of morning shower. And then it should be mostly cloudy in the afternoon. Temperatures in the 60s tomorrow and sunshine Wednesday with highs in the mid-60s. It is 49 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. Now this is the sound of mourning on the streets of Seoul, South Korea. Buddhist monks chanted as people laid flowers for the 154 people who were killed in a Halloween stampede. It's the nation's most deadly crowd accident. NPR's Anthony Kuhn is covering this story from Seoul. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Steve. What was the scene like at the place where people were were marking these deaths? We were just listening to sounds from an informal altar, which was outside the Itaewon subway stop near the site of the accident. Itaewon is a kind of funky, multicultural neighborhood of bars and restaurants, embassies, and international schools in Seoul. People stop by this place to put flowers, candles, bottles of liquor, and other offerings on the ground. And in addition to this unofficial altar, there were also two official ones in Itaewon and another by City Hall. President Yoon Song-yeol and his wife paid tribute to the victims there today. Uh, And this is the second day of a week-long period of mourning with flags at half-staff across the nation and many events canceled. And I'm sure that many people with a little extra time on their hands are asking the question, how did this happen? Yes, well, just steps away from this unofficial altar was the site of the crowd surge. The center of it was an alleyway, which is only 11 and a half foot across. It runs downhill to Itaewon's main street. Eyewitnesses say this place was just packed with around 100,000 people in Itaewon. Uh, And at the uphill end of this alley, people started pushing, and then people started falling down in front of them, and they were buried by others falling on top of them. Medics and bystanders tried to resuscitate people who were lying on the sidewalk. The largest group of these people were in their 20s, there to party and celebrate Halloween. All of the dead, including 26 foreigners, of whom two were Americans, have now been identified. Police and forensic investigators combed the alleyway for clues today, but the precise cause of the crowd surge is still not clear. I'm sure that some people are asking why the police would not have controlled the crowd a little differently. That's right. Uh, The interior minister of South Korea said yesterday that police were busy dealing with political protests. But even if they had deployed large numbers of police, it wouldn't have prevented the tragedy. Today, though, the National Police Agency admitted they failed to predict that the crowd could become deadly. They admitted that the police weren't doing any crowd control in that alley. There were 137 police there in Itaewon, but they were directing traffic and looking out for street crime. They also admitted they don't have any standard procedures for a spontaneous event uh, where there's no organizer that authorities can work with. And what insights did you gain, Anthony, when moving around the area where this happened? Well, there were a lot of people at this informal altar. It was the first weekday since the accident happened. There was a lot of raw energy. Um, This is a national tragedy, and such events always seem to be followed by introspection about how this was allowed to happen and how to prevent it. So far, nobody has taken responsibility or been held accountable for the tragedy, but that may happen later as the investigation goes on and makes clearer the causes of this tragedy. Anthony, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. NPR's Anthony Kuhn. The anesthetic ketamine has become a popular treatment for severe depression. Now, scientists report that the benefits last longer when treatment includes a large dose of computer games. Here's NPR's John Hamilton. An intravenous dose of ketamine can relieve depression in hours and often rescues patients who haven't responded to other drugs. But Rebecca Price, a psychologist at the University of Pittsburgh, says the effects tend to wear off after a week or two. 
and then returning for infusions over and over to keep that relief going can end up being really burdensome and costly and just isn't accessible to all patients. So Price and a team of researchers wanted to find a way to make ketamine's antidepressant effects last longer. They decided to focus on one particular symptom. Low self-esteem and even quite severe self-loathing is quite typical to see in the context of depression. The team drew on research suggesting that ketamine temporarily causes certain brain areas to enter a state in which they form lots of new connections. Price says during this period, the brain seems to be more receptive to learning and change. So we tried to use that window of opportunity just after ketamine to strengthen associations specifically between the idea of me, myself, and positive information and attributes. The team did a study of 154 people, including a group that played special computer games for several days after they received an infusion of ketamine. Some of these games involved words, and Price says every time the word I appeared, it was followed by a positive term. Good, lovable, sweet, worthy, etc. Price says other games used images. For example, participants were asked to click on a photo as soon as it flashed on one area of the screen. But every time they click on their own photo, what appears right afterwards in that same location is a smiling face. Price says the games had a surprisingly powerful effect, which the team described in the American Journal of Psychiatry. By doing these really simple computer exercises for just four days after the infusion and then nothing further, we could extend the antidepressant effect of one infusion of ketamine for at least a month, and it's looking like it was actually closer to three months. If those results hold up, the approach could make ketamine treatment much more affordable. Dr. Sanjay Matthew is a professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and a co-author of the study. He says right now, insurance rarely covers the treatment. Ketamine infusions can cost anywhere from $300 to $800 or even higher. So that's obviously a huge challenge for many patients and the biggest reason we can't send more patients to ketamine. And Matthew says that because therapists are in such short supply, mental health centers would welcome a computerized addition to ketamine therapy. It could be disseminated widely in clinics that don't have resources to be able to engage in any number of psychotherapies that work on self-esteem and beliefs about oneself. Matthew says even the busiest clinic has time for a smile or two. John Hamilton, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu could be on the verge of a historic comeback.
In our forecast, partly sunny today. Temperatures in the 60s. Cloudy for trick-or-treaters tonight. Temperatures in the 50s. Tomorrow, a few showers in the morning. Clouds in the afternoon. Highs in the 60s. It is 49 degrees in Boston. In business news, Braintree-based ultra-industrial motion is being acquired for $5 billion. The manufacturing company is being bought by a competitor in Wisconsin. The deal needs shareholder and regulatory approval. Several Hudson residents are suing the town and tech giant Intel over a proposed redevelopment project. The project would build a large warehouse on the site of Intel's former property. The residents' attorneys argue that the plan violates town bylaws. Needham-based Candell Therapeutics is partnering with the University of Pennsylvania to create a treatment for tumors. Under the deal, both Penn and Candell will retain full ownership of their existing intellectual property. The time is 8.45. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. The leader of Israel's right wing is trying to stage a comeback. Benjamin Netanyahu was ousted last year, and he's on trial for corruption, but he's a frontrunner in Tuesday's elections. He's promising to form a government with politicians on the far right. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports on what Netanyahu hopes to achieve. His supporters chant, Bibi, King of Israel. Bibi Benjamin Netanyahu is crisscrossing the country holding campaign rallies, sometimes three a night. He's 73 years old and with boundless energy. Here he greets a crowd in Ofakim, a blue-collar town in Israel's south. He says, do you want to bring back your personal security? Do you want to bring down the cost of living? Do you want to bring back our national pride in a Jewish country? Those are the themes that resonate with his supporters, the rising cost of living, but also nationalism and security, the classic Israeli issue of Arabs versus Jews, and who has the upper hand. Voter Ortal Shlomo says without Netanyahu in office this past year, she hasn't slept well at night. She says those who came to power ruined the country. They gave the Arabs power and strengthened them. An Arab political party was part of the governing coalition this year, a first in Israel's history. Netanyahu offers a different vision for Israel. If he's re-elected, he says he'll give a cabinet minister seat to far-right Itamar Ben-Gvir, whose campaign is to exile Arabs he deems hostile. Ben-Gvir is shunned by the pro-Israel group APAC, but Netanyahu's party claims he's more moderate than the past. Shlomo says, we need someone like Ben-Gvir in the government. We need his power of deterrence. He is moderated from his extremism. We need him just as he is. He will cause them to go back into the holes where they came from, the Arabs. Another major issue Netanyahu's allies are pushing is to strip the justice system of some of its powers. Netanyahu is on trial for corruption, and his supporters think it's a plot by left-wing justice officials. Voter Gila Dre. I think it's a trial to topple a government. It cannot be the judges get to decide for the country, she tells me. Hebrew University politics professor Reuven Chazan says Netanyahu wants to return to office to exert the right pressure needed to try to shake off his trial. 
he truly believes that while in power, he can do the best in order to avoid his trial ending up in a guilty verdict. For that reason, I think he is dangerous to Israeli democracy. In this tight race, polls suggest Netanyahu's bloc could get just enough votes for him to build a coalition with the religious far right. He will be at the whim of the most extremist elements in his governing coalition. And those extremist elements, to put it bluntly, are non-democratic elements. Another option, Netanyahu could ditch the far right and convince some of his political opponents to partner with him instead. What doesn't seem likely is an outright win for the anti-Netanyahu bloc of parties. There could be a stalemate. And if Netanyahu doesn't win, some in his party could defect, making it hard for him to return to office again. Back at the rally, Benjamin Netanyahu tells his supporters, we are so close to victory. The message is optimistic, but this may be his last chance at a comeback. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Ofakim, in southern Israel. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us at noontime today for Here and Now. Robin Young is with me in the studio right now to tell us what's coming up on today's program. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Nice to see you. Thank and you. Uh, we're going to be beginning with, um, you know, speak, it's Halloween, but the horror of what's been going on, the violence, the attack on Paul Pelosi, and the new report that uh, is uh, indicating that there's going to be far more violence during the midterms elections. And so we're going to speak with Robert Pape, who's the political scientist who, of course, studies all of this. And he says, the one thing that has to happen, Deb, is that you have to have 10 top Republicans and 10 top Democrats get up and say this must stop. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we could get that number, at least in one column. So we'll take a look at that. Also, Chelsea Manning was at City Space. I had mm-hmm. a chance to sit down with her. And she's, of course, the intelligence analyst for the Army who released that huge uh, leak of government documents to WikiLeaks mm-hmm. and then transitioned to a woman while in prison. You may know that story, but, man, you do not know her backstory. It's amazing. Growing up in an alcoholic home in Oklahoma, getting used to violence mm-hmm. at, at a very young age, when she was first arrested by the army being put in a cell that was an animal cage because they thought, well, she's got this disorder, so she might hurt herself. Uh, Really disturbing backstory, Mm. and we'll hear that at noon, and lots more at noon. All right, Robin, thanks so much. Good to see you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. This November, Kentucky's state constitution will be at the center of another battle around abortion rights. This is really about how do we start reversing the tide of these really extreme abortion restrictions. Hear that story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Grain prices are up amid concerns of a renewed Russian blockade. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses with customizable coverage options as unique as your business. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. 
and by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps get rid of them. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at avalara.com. For Marketplace in Austin, Texas, I'm Andy Euler and for David Brancaccio. So over the weekend, Russia suspended participation in a grain export deal brokered by the United Nations, which allowed for shipments of Ukrainian wheat and corn to leave the Black Sea. Moscow's move came after reports of explosions on its warships in the area. This grain has uh, been important for lowering food prices around the globe by as much as 15%, according to the U.N., now there are fears the opposite's going to happen. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe, producing and exporting things like wheat, corn, soybeans, and sunflower oil. With the deal allowing Ukrainian exports in jeopardy, prices shot up. Corn prices were up more than 2% after Russia's announcement. Hundreds of thousands of tons of Ukrainian wheat is scheduled to be delivered to Africa and the Middle East, to places where people are already starving. The International Rescue Committee says Russia's withdrawal from the export deal will have, quote, catastrophic consequences. Reuters is reporting that Ukraine, the U.N., and Turkey are going to continue the shipments, and there's a transit plan covering 16 ships today. The deal allowing Ukrainian exports is due to expire on November 19th. Turkey has been pressuring Russia to renew the deal. There are hopes for more negotiations at a meeting of the G20 in Bali in two weeks. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. And if you think supply chain problems have caused havoc in the economy thus far, just wait a few weeks. There is again the possibility of brewing of a rail strike. Two unions representing rail workers have now rejected a tentative contract agreement with railroad companies, both unions for the same reason. Marketplace's Lily Jamali takes a look. The proposal on the table offers railroad workers a 24% wage increase over five years and annual bonuses. Unions have been pushing for up to 15 sick days for workers who currently have none. This has been an issue of contention throughout um, the entire negotiation process. That's Jennifer Blackhurst at the University of Iowa. I think it's a, an issue focusing on the rights of the workers and the workers feeling good about how they're treated as human beings. The railroads estimate offering 15 days of paid sick leave would cost $688 million a year. Cornell's Kate Broffenbrenner doubts that would seriously harm their bottom lines. You have to divide that by the number of workers. Remember, this is one of the largest bargaining units in the country. A unit that's 115,000 workers strong. The Association of American Railroads estimates a strike by those workers could cost as much as $2 billion a day in economic output. I'm Lily Dramali for Marketplace. Let's take a look at the numbers. As we mentioned, grain futures uh, are headed higher this morning. Wheat futures are, were up this morning by as much as 5.5%. Corn futures are up too. The FTSE in London is up two-tenths of 1%. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down more than half percent this morning, with the Dow future down more than 175 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is up at 4.048%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. 
and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement, income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And by In Deep Season 2, which follows the people in a working-class city as they struggle to rebuild after a year of climate chaos. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So it's been a month since Hurricane Ian made landfall in southwest Florida, but recovery is still just beginning. For the first time after a major disaster, there will be federal funding available to help people who were already experiencing homelessness before the hurricane. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more. Normally, when there's a major hurricane, people who were homeless before the storm aren't eligible for much aid after. Most federal programs tend to benefit homeowners, renters, business owners. Isabella Alcaniz researches climate change and inequality at the University of Maryland. So the unhoused population, which is at incredibly high risk of, you know, feeling the brunt of natural disasters are typically not part of, you know, the millions and even billions of dollars that we see going into helping people get back on their feet. But now they will get help. The Department of Housing and Urban Development has announced nearly $7 million to help people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness in communities that were affected by Hurricane Ian. They'll be able to get rental assistance and supportive services to go along with that rental assistance. Anne Oliva is CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. And that rental assistance could be used for up to two years. It's a big deal. It's a game changer for how communities can respond to the needs of people experiencing homelessness and housing instability after a natural disaster. Often after hurricanes and other disasters like wildfires. What we see is a worsening of the pre-existing housing crisis in a lot of these areas. Noah Patton is with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Because not only are you knocking rental housing offline, you're also knocking offline owner-occupied homes. Which makes it harder than ever for people with very low incomes or no income to find places to live. Gladys Cook at the nonprofit Florida Housing Coalition says support for people in those situations is particularly critical after a storm as catastrophic as Ian. Systems are stressed. People who are living out of doors can't. People who are living in their vehicles may have lost their vehicle. So it just adds a whole lot more stress to the situation. The money that's been announced so far won't be nearly enough to help everyone, she says. But it is a good start. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. General Motors has paused advertising on Twitter. It's the first big advertiser to pull back since Elon Musk took over. GM calls this a normal step when a media partner makes big changes. Sure. In Austin, I'm Andy Euler with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, partly sunny today. Temperatures in the 60s. For trick-or-treaters tonight, clouds with temperatures in the 50s. And tomorrow, some showers in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, highs in the 60s. It is 49 degrees in Boston at just about 9 o'clock. Stay with us. BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.
my midday host, Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.